Cultivating Place is made possible in part by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the American Horticultural Society's annual individual membership by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special cultivating place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Ali Meters Knight is a Machupta tribal member whose traditional and present homelands are based in interior Northern California. A mother of five and a traditional basket weaver in Chico, California, she's also a tribal liaison working to form partnerships for federal forest stewardship contracting and tribal forestry programs authorized in the 2018 Farm Bill. On this first day of July, it is a great honor to speak with you, Ali. Welcome. Hey, Tunani. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I have introduced you in this very basic way, but I would love to have you describe for listeners your current mission statement for your own cultivating or gardening work and practice. So, you know, I think the mission is that all land management takes uh, a long time. Um, All land management is about time management. And mostly what I try to look at is to create restorative places and ecosystems for the next hundred years and to train and to create a workforce as a legacy to continue on to that maintenance so that the intention goes into fruition. You know, I, I expect that the restoration projects that I work on today will not be seen into its maturity until 100 years. And so um, I will be visiting and tending those places in a spirit form. I love that thought. So I would love for you to take listeners back, Allie, and tell people uh, about where you were born and raised and who the people and places and plants were that grew you into a, a woman for whom taking care of land, restoring land, and traditional ecological knowledge would be something of great value in your adulthood? So yeah, I was born in uh, Falls Church, Virginia, uh, Alexandria, Virginia. So this place that I was born in was, you know, uh, my parents, my dad, my parents were really young. My dad has uh, just gotten to the Navy. So I spent most of my young life going from uh, you know, school to school, Navy base to Navy base. And I, I, I went to probably about nine to 10 elementary schools, about four or five middle schools. And, you know, I finally went to high school at one place in Spotsylvania, Virginia. And in my lifetime, I've, I went and lived in Covalo Indian Reservation. I visited California, lived in California um, for long, you know, periods if to me were long periods even if it was a year or nine months was a long time for me but uh, I would have um, a lot of childhood experiences on my grandparents uh, property and uh, on Joplin Road in Prince William County Virginia and it was right outside the FBI base uh, training center and so I often um, would be out there you know looking for my favorite thing what I learned to identify was sassafras root and I love sass- the sassafras tree everything about a sassafras fascinated me and so um, I didn't know that to identify sassafras root was really hard because a lot of plants look like sassafras root when they're growing and I was um, I was always uh, excited to see if I could find the the plant and pull it and when I pulled it up it would it would smell like root beer so just being out in the woods and just gathering something that smelled like candy um, you know to me or you know like soda pop was fun I would often try to bite it and taste it because it was just so tempting but no um, it didn't taste good but 
Um, (laughs) And I always had these vivid memories of like having a lot of um, curiosity about plants and and, um, smelling them and their textures and just wanting to have more of relationship text, you know, just to touch them and what to do with them. And um, basket weaving fascinated me and uh, growing up, but I wasn't really connected. It wasn't until I was 18 years old and graduated high school. And I was like one of those artist kids that I was in a jazz band, uh, played tennis, uh, really, you know, assimilated myself into American culture really well um, to, to the most degree. But I mean, I was reading books at 18, like The Power of Myth, you know, Joseph Campbell and stuff. So I was... I was ready to kind of like, uh, you know, go back west and, and you know, be involved. But I, I really didn't have a lot of expectations either. I, I just was like, okay, I'm going back to, to California. So I came here to Chico, California. I was 18 years old. And and I jumped right into to the typical Chico party scene and made a lot of good friends and best friends. Um, what really kind of caught me was that I was hanging out at the area that was right next to our tribal cemetery. And I saw people walking through our cemetery and uh, our tribal cemetery. And I, I realized that my grandfather was, my great grandfather was buried there. A lot of my, my family was there. And I just saw people being drunk and disrespectful. There were, at that time, there was no gate prohibiting people to kind of walk through this, what they call the Indian cemetery. And I was the Indian cemetery. And that hit me really hard. I kind of like, I kind of just didn't want to hang out with people anymore. It kind of bothered me what I saw. And so I ended up going to LA. I just started volunteering myself uh, to different programs that were wholesome, you know, just, I mean, wholesome to me. I mean, I was taking women to go see children and uh, after they got out of prison (laughs) and I would be cleared by their uh, parole officer and then I would be able to transport them to go visit kids and stuff. So to me, that was wholesome. (laughs) Uh So then I, um, came back to Chico, California to visit everybody. And I was pregnant this time. And um, I walked through the park, I walked through Chico, and um, there was just a deep aching need that I couldn't describe that I had to come home and I couldn't live in Los Angeles. I couldn't live in the city anymore. Um, I flew back in, I drove around the city, I got around, everything was just pitiful to me or just put me in a really depressive um, uh, state that all I wanted to do was was come home. So I enrolled at Chico State College and I got accepted. And um, I left with, uh, left a relationship with a four-month-old to come home because um, he didn't want to leave L.A. and I had to. And so he didn't want to come with me. So it was that's, that's how I had to come home. And so I uh, I went to a camp that summer. And in that camp... I stayed for a week. My daughter came and visited me. My family took care, but I stayed on the river for a week and I learned basket weaving. I learned how to process soap root. I learned how to process acorn and um, just, you know, a handful of things, but all week long, you know, went fishing, cooked outside, did netting, worked with feathers. um, uh, And I just couldn't stop basket weaving. Once they showed me how to do it, I just couldn't stop and I didn't want to forget how to do it. So as soon as I finished a basket, I would be starting another one just to remember how to start it and then and then also how to finish it. And I was just so afraid of losing how to do it that I would just do it over and over and over again. And then after the camp, I started going, trying to find more sticks and there wasn't really a master weaver around. So I ended up going to the river, going to all these different goofy places to gather willow just because I'd be driving along and I'd be like, oh, there's willow. And I'd grab it and I'd come home, find out, oh, Caltrans put a bunch of poison down in that area. You probably shouldn't put that in your mouth. And I'm like, ah, dang it. So I'd have to find another spot, you know, and then I I went through all kinds of things. So eventually, um, you know, I was trying to hold workshops and um, and getting willow. So it was Chico State University that had some property on Butte Creek and uh, Professor Don Hankins that we were able to get a willow uh, patch going really strong for basket material. And we ended up uh, uh, propagating it so well and around that we were we created a weir that you could see even from a satellite from space yeah. um, on that creek. So the the land management along with attending for basket willow uh, material was really fundamentally the beginning of my land management experience. 
and mostly it was teaching kids. Uh, I, uh, I'll have to say it was having to come up with curriculum after curriculum, working on a Kids and Creeks program that, you know, you have fifth graders, fourth graders, 10th graders. I'd, I'd end up learning all kinds of stuff to go run down to teach the kids. That's so great. So at what point was it known to you consciously that your traditional home and your uh, Native American ancestry was based in Chico, California, or what is, you know, what we call Chico, California now? Yeah, my dad was a tribal administrator of the Machupta tribe. And okay. in 1991, we filed a lawsuit in the Sugar Bowl lawsuit for our federal recognition because we were illegally terminated as a tribe. So we sued yep. the we sued the federal government and got our we got our recognition reestablished. My dad was the tribal administrator at that time. And I lived with him. So I would just go to work with him in the morning. And I was I wasn't an employee. And at that time, tribal offices often had half the community members just sitting around having coffee and answering the phones and filing when they didn't even work there. Um, just because we just were so, we were so new, you know, we were yeah. just, just so new. And so I was in there drawing pictures, going through files. We ended up getting boxes and boxes of BIA files on the Machupta and I ended up going through them and to file them. And it was, you know, spending hours and hours, you know, I would look up and I'm like, oh my God, I have to eat lunch. And <laughs> I'd, I'd have to go eat lunch and come back. And I just day after day start looking through these records. And wow. a lot of it I absorbed. And a lot of it was also plant material because, you know, in the early 1900s, the tribe had an uh, herbal business called Arrow, Arrowhead Medicine. And mm. it was shut down by Enlo who is now the now named after the big hospital and his whole legacy. But he had done a lot to shut down the Machupta herbal practice. And a lot of that information was in BIA records. So um, I, I also just got enough information to go, you know, go to the Bancroft and go to other uh, libraries to find more information based on yeah. the uh, the tips I got of the BAA records. That is great. And so when you moved back to Chico at 18, your father was here? Yes, my father okay. and my whole family. So my whole tribal family started to move back because of our tribal recognition. We were building an, yeah. a housing program. And since we didn't have like a reservation or land and trust, we were going to have to buy real estate of, on the competitive market and turn it into a corporation for housing um, and make it for low income um, in the middle of, of town amongst everybody, which really brought us to City Hall. We had a lot of folks come in saying they didn't want Native natives because we'd bring down the value of their property. Mm. Oh. Did you go to the camp where you immersed yourself in learning skills prior to working with Kids in Creeks? So it was a really interesting um, development for the cultural camp, and it didn't happen very often. It happened to be something that was very magical because it didn't happen a lot, and it only happened in this little window frame. And it was before I taught at Kids and Creeks. So what happened was I kind of showed up and I, I met Brian Bibby and Craig Bates, who are both ethnographers. They were in their 40s um, and 50s, maybe, and they were... They were ethnographers and, and, uh, and when they were 18, 19, and they met Machupta tribal elder Henry Asbel. And Henry Asbel corresponded with them and shared knowledge with them, wrote letters with them, and they kept strict records. They kept it immaculate records of all their correspondence with our tribal elder. And he was so forthright in sharing information. He shared them uh, cultural items. He showed them stories. Henry Asbel's mother is Mary Asbel. Mary Asvelt has is buried in our tribal cemetery, the one that I said everyone was traipsy upon and going Ouija board. You know, they were just being disrespectful. Um, she is um, she was the queen in waiting uh, in Hawaii. And so there's a huge background story of uh, the Hawaiian connection with the Machupta oh. and that, you know, Henry Asvelt's mother um, was related to King Kamehameha. And she was uh, with the king during his death. And, she, you know, just the political colonization of Hawaii happened kind of uh, on top of, uh, of, the, of what happened here in Northern California. And so there's a lot of episodes in ethnography. And so when they studied it at 18 and 19, they were fascinated with it. And they, they, um, they, it, it broke their heart to think that the Machupta culture, the Machupta people 
were forgotten and treated as has-beens when they kind of knew the lineage of all of us. And we kind of all kind of stayed together and married into other tribal groups, but still held some identity to who we were, even mm-hmm. when we were placed in Kovalo. So when they worked with our cultural director, they basically created a curriculum to throw in all the ethnographer as much as they could information that they got from um, Henry Asbelt to pass down to all of us. So it was our choice to go and follow them as they did it, but it was a one-shot deal because soon after they taught all this, um, Craig Bates had a stroke and was able to speak. I think it was in 1999. And then when he fell ill, I took on a really strong passion to to keep going because he he shared that right before that happened to him. So I have yeah. wow. I have to keep pushing. So you, I mean, it seems like the universe just kept putting this back in your path, back in your path, Allie, that these were things that were um, yours to, to care for. Did it, did it feel like that at the time? No, I had really low self-esteem and I didn't feel worthy, which was great um, because I didn't really build an ego around it, which was mm-hmm. helpful. I still have a chip mm-hmm. on my shoulder, but that's because of all the information I know and I'm just kind of a little bit mad about it. I, I could be better. Uh-huh. So describe moving into the Kids in Creeks program. When I worked, started working with Kids in Creeks, the program is outdoor education, watershed education. And so I saw, and even Don Hankins that was working with me, a f- perfect fit to incorporate traditional ecological knowledge, or TEK, into watershed management and education for kids as an outdoor classroom. It, w- it was a perfect fit. You know, and then to understand that this is basket material and kids like to look at handmade baskets. They like to look with, you know, so I started making even where they're not making baskets, but they were making like, you know, towers for the garden for for like cucumber climbs or for any vine climbing plants, how to, you know, to make these, you know, towers to put in your gardens that are, you know, not metal, but, you know, willow and helpful and willow has hormones that are healthy for gardens that what they're putting in and and you know for gardening even at that point of utilizing watershed management and the materials that you get and how to use them at home or in your own daily life so if you're not a you know avid basket weaver you don't know that but you want to you know use the willow material to make towers for your garden the kids love that idea so they spent hours twining and twisting and making um and and they got really creative with it where it wasn't so much that I, they were culturally appropriating basket weaving and i wasn't teaching a sacred basket process but you know as some, you know it is it is to me intellectual knowledge of the tribe so i am scarce on what mm-hmm. i teach but i was yes. able to conform that curriculum and it was tough because, um, well, the Kids in Creeks had different stations, and I was just the native station. So scientists and different biologists and different other engineers would come in, and and it would be separate from my native station. And I had a hard time, kind of like, uh, because it was it was really blowing children's mind and people's mind that they kept being told that it was a past tense. Tra- cultural practice. And Mm. I was bringing Mm -hmm. it into the present tense and challenging that narrative. And so a lot of times they wanted me to keep the native station separate from land management than what the engineers and biologists and scientists were doing. And a lot of times that may had to bring me into uh, actually the narrative of what happened to the Machupta in this area to explain the whole nature of why they thought I was gone and why they thought I didn't know this knowledge and why we have to actually share this knowledge even though all this stuff has happened for our greater good because we share this land and we need healthy ecosystems. This is Cultivating Place. Ali Meters Knight is a gardener, land steward, and a mother, a basket weaver, and a Machupta Indian tribal member in Northern California. We'll be right back after a break for more on the power of traditional ecological knowledge held in land and people with Ali Meters Knight. Stay with us. Cool. 
Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to celebrate its 100th anniversary next year, the AHS has been a trusted source of high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. Today, the mission of the American Horticultural Society blends education, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship with the art and practice of horticulture. Members of the American Horticultural Society receive the award-winning flagship magazine, The American Gardener. They also receive free admission and other discounts to more than 345 public gardens with the Reciprocal Admissions Program, plus discounts on books, seeds, programs, and more. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I'm thinking this week about this idea of embodied knowledge. What does it mean? And how do we tap into it? And even more importantly, how do we steward and amplify it as we move forward in these times and from these times? especially as gardeners. Embodied knowledge, those things we know in our bodies because we have learned them through our bodies. We know the sound of the robins and the wrens all chatty in the morning is a sign of spring and spring nesting. We know the feel of soil that holds just the right amount of moisture or organic material because we have worked with that soil and our plants in that soil long enough for our fingertips and our eyes, even our noses, to know that it is just right or a little too damp or a little too dry. We know, too, when our plants are happy or they're in need of something by the mere sheen or drape of their leaves or the timing of their fruit or flowers. Our body knows when things look and feel and are right or when they're wrong. In this conversation with Allie, She knows from her long life working in native watersheds of her place that willow is happier growing with mugwort. That willow, grown and cared for, harvested and prepared in a particular way, makes for the very best basket material. This is embodied knowledge, known through time and space, from years of her own experience, embedded and contextualized in generations of her family's associations, caring for and working in and with these same environments. It is how we know our mother languages, our spoken languages, and our body languages. We're back now to our conversation with Ali Meters Knight, a gardener and land steward and a Machupta Indian tribal liaison in Northern California. So um, Verbena Fields was a pretty much a, a lot of land that was uh, owned by the city. And there was propositions for de- development for apartments. There was uh, also... Um, you know, just uh, it was a dump. It was an old gravel site where they had grinded up rock for gravel to make Highway 99. And then a lot of that housing that was developed all around it for acre miles and miles was um, those, you know, constructing sites were kind of dumping there. Um, we had toilets and sinks and counters and just pipes and just pretty much a 
tons of drywall and um so there was um it was it it, it needed it needed some TLC and the reason why it was so tough is that it was a flood zone so they had paved pretty much all the way up into this Rio Lindo channel which is like the relief of flood which is an actual real creek before um but they wanted to uh it got pinched so bad that the water would just rush in and flood and because it was so the flood it's not like it was flooding wetlands it was flooding toxic gravel material and dump site stuff and so and washing it into the community so there had to be a big pro program. So, tip, you know, they decided to make it into a restorative watershed and it turned into an interpretive park. Well, it turned into an interpretive native park when I sat on the board and they were like, offered me a native garden, just one little native garden uh, in the whole restorative watershed. And I was like, that is so ridiculous. You need all native plants in this watershed re restoration in order for it to be viable. Why would you only put a tiny patch, a micro garden of native plants in a whole restorative project? That makes absolutely no sense. Give me the whole park for restoration and I'll make it interpretive and teach folks to EK. It was quite an endeavor. It's been years and years now, almost 12 plus years. So that that project's been there. So we've been working on this and getting things together. You know, the volunteer program has been up and down. There's been times when there, um, there's been times when we've had, uh, I guess, uh, five volunteers out, and then there's times where we have twenty five, and there's times when there's just me and another person walking around looking at plants and surveying what needs to be done. To give a little bit more of description for listeners, the work that Allie and her uh, volunteers and and group have accomplished on this land is phenomenal. And the return of native lupin, native willow, some of the trees, a, a much a much healthier bend and um, uh, what would be the like, route of this little creek coming through so that there are some wetlands to absorb the flood and slow the flood when it comes. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable the restoration you have done there. And, and I want to say that when I first saw you teaching in 2008 and then have heard you speaking since, as well as other research and people I have interviewed, these are, these are some of the, the people and and methods um, and relationships that really inspired me to understand that my own understanding of what it is to garden, quote unquote garden, is so constricted compared to what it actually is, that what you are doing on that 17 acres in that wetland and watershed restoration is absolutely gardening on a bigger, broader just more profound scale than than I understood until. 14, 15 years ago, Allie. Aw. Well, it, 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 but it did come into, um, it was just a beautiful fall into place because I think if I, my mom did a lot of gardening and she did perennial gardens and stuff like yeah. that. And she would know the Latin terms, talk about their stems, they're pulling it apart, look at all this. And I was like, that's cool. <laughs> um, but <laughs> what really fascinated me was walking with another traditional uh, practitioner on their land together and identifying plants and talking about their breakthrough, what they're used for. And then as I got further, I started to know that each plant had a thousand year, hundred year relationship with their buddies. There's symbiotic relationships based on ecosystem. So when I started seeing that, then it wasn't so much that, oh, when I see willow all by itself, I'm like, oh, it needs its monomony seeds. And so then I know those go together, they're buddies. And so I go and uh, get, go look for the mugwort, see if there's seeds, if there's something. They're so mm -hmm. tiny. And sometimes I that's when I will go to a botanist or a specialist and say, I can't find the seeds on these. Um, and they should have seeds on them. And then kind of learn how to break it down to get them and see how small they actually are. Because I thought that they were a little bigger based on what I was collecting. So we share knowledge together a lot of times, and I don't mind inviting a lot of specialists in and asking them really important questions. And mm -hmm. I have no clue sometimes that they're learning from me as we do this. But I believe that uh, 
walking the land together and meeting the plants and looking at the whole ecosystem as a whole and seeing how it all kind of operates changes your perspective of what your intention should be as a steward. Mm, yeah. When I think about what you have accomplished at, at Verbena Fields in this way, you know, that intention is so clear. Um, and, and it really pulls back around to what you said right in the beginning, that um, part of the intention is that you are just a part of a long continuum of time in alliance with this land and the, the plants that live there. And, um, and, and that perspective, I think, is just, is one that we all need to be clear on, even in little suburban home gardens, Allie. And it, and it really took, um, it really took center stage for me um, when I really had to step up to the plate and talk because community was really in a traumatic state of mind go, uh, recovering from the campfire. And then there was a bear complex fire soon after that. And people were right. trying to wrap their minds around, you know, large land management projects. Like it just behooves them. And the idea that, you know, lumber companies and corporations seem to be the, um, uh, seemed to be the stellar, you know, answers to the questions seemed to was, you know, I think it was, it was a little bit, you know, um, convenient for some folks, but for a lot of folks, I know it didn't settle well. They knew that corporations like Tetratech that clean up after, you know, hurricanes surely are not going to be experts in how to clean up our vast amount, you know, Butte County alone, over a thousand acres of forests that are federal, you know, not a lot of personal property and whatnot. So um, we have, you know, this mindset of, whoa. So it took for me kind of uh, positioning myself that um, Machupta territory is my territory. And if you're going to touch a plant and restoration or make a project to restore or fix anything in Machupta territory, it's important to consult with the traditional ecological practitioner and the tribe in that area if it's available. If it's not, I understand. But if there is one, then why would you avoid the consultation to to do land management and restoration and territory? And surely I'm capable of it. So I really um, had to build myself to almost show the audacity and racism of some of the um, stakeholders that are running the programs here and that um, you really cannot dismiss me or discredit my knowledge or what I do, especially now that I'm, you know, you know, my mid 40s and I'm going forward and I am now, you know, master traditional practitioner of my tribe. Um, and I don't wave that flag very much, but if I had to, I think that it's good for a consultation because a lot of times folks that want to do land management have ideas about what native trees belong where and don't see the strategy of of, of really uh, reducing fuels by managing plants in a way that has been managed for thousands of years using small prescribed fires and uh, regimens of land management that 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 take years and years and years and qualified workforces to do. So that's what I'm here to do. You know, using that, I'm going to make workforces. This is Cultivating Place. Allie Meters Knight is a gardener land steward, a mother, a traditional basket weaver, and a Machupta Indian tribal member in Northern California. We'll be right back after a break for more on the traditional ecological knowledge held in land and people and the hope that Ali has for this knowledge being a source of healing and prosperity. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud and riffing off this idea of embodied knowledge, the idea of stewarding and amplifying embodied knowledge is reflected not only in my conversation today with Ali, but also in my decision, which you might have noted, to judiciously partner with individuals, organizations, and institutions 
whose embodied and codified knowledge aligns with my mission at Cultivating Place to serve our gardening community. Groups like the American Horticultural Society, whose hundred years of gardening and horticultural knowledge is an asset and a resource I would like to see amplified and grown along even better for more of us in more of our places as we all move forward. Because together, we do grow the world better, and we grow it even better the more finely attuned we are to the knowledge embodied in all of us. In the last two Cultivating Place conversations, first with Jessica Walliser and then with Kelly Norris, I asked all of you to share with me some of your embodied knowledge in the form of summer sounds and ecological home bases for you. And I got some wonderful memories and shared imprints your places have made on you over your lifetimes. From Rebecca of fireflies in the humid heat of a Western Massachusetts summer evening. The fireflies often accompanied by the high whine of mosquitoes feeding and meadow grasses waving, lit by the fireflies above. I heard from another Jennifer of the sound and scent of the electricity of late afternoon thunder and lightning at altitude on a Colorado mountainside, and from Emily of that distinctive scent of a dry landscape. Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, after a brief summer shower. Known as petrichor, this scent of sagebrush and creosote with a little bit of dampness is something you don't soon forget. I heard stories from Betty Ann of the lush sound of peepers in the salty tidal marshes of South Carolina's low country, and the resurrection ferns woken up and rehydrated with rain on old live oak branches in this same area. Denise talked about the smell of sunscreen and sand in her summer lunches on the beach, sand accumulated in her summer shoes and in the bottom of her summer bags. Charles shared the impression of happy, warm, unguarded summer people singing and skating and sunning in Central Park. Our bodies know much more than we can fathom all at once. They know all that we have seen and smelled, tasted, touched, and held in our lifetimes. For better or worse, but definitely including all the gardens, all the plants, all the forests, all the rivers, all the coastlines, all the mountain ranges and meadows all the everyday garden moments that we share in our places with our plants. And all of this embodied knowledge holds guidance too, I think. Good guidance and touchstones for our garden lives going forward. We're back now to our conversation with Allie Meters Knight, a gardener and land steward, a mother, a basket weaver, and a Machupta Indian tribal member in Northern California. Many listeners will remember that in November of 2018, the campfire broke out in Butte County, California. She and I can attest to the fact that it was very traumatizing to our whole region. We we continue to try to recover in whatever ways um, we are able and that means to people. But as she is referring to, you know, in the wake of the fire, there were these knee-jerk reactions to kind of clean it and fix it. Uh, One, because of concern about toxins. Two, because of concern about, you know, debris and the coming winter storms and erosion and toxicity again. But as she's also pointing out, it was this tremendous opportunity and remains a tremendous opportunity to rethink how we are caring for land in this ecosystem level way, not just 
quick fix, clean up, sell the dead wood, get it out of here. But how do we take better care and put better systems back in place where they were so, um, you know, degraded by the way development had taken place over the last 150 years? So, yeah, so the TEK Chico uh, Stewardship Program uh, started as a pretty much a demonstration, uh, not only to my tribe, tribal community, my tribe, but also to the whole greater community uh, at large, that the certification was worthy of of, uh, pursuing and that the knowledge was uh, very insightful, great uh, class act kind of stuff, you know, very high end. So I, uh, I put together what I thought was going to be about 50 participants. I did an ad out. I was going to say, okay, this is introduction to TEK certification. I'm going to have these stations. We're going to go through this riparia areas, go through this little transition out of this woodlands into this riparia. We're going to go talk about, you know, what plants belong in these transition areas and why and their symbiotic partners and you know, and then get ourselves down to the creek and talk uh, about, you know, some restoration practices and, and get people on to propagating some willow just to get some experience and putting down seeds. So we uh, we put it together and a, over 100, uh, 150 people showed up. And so I had to readjust everything, but because of Kids and Creeks and all of my ability to just, you know, spend out with these, you know, it was years doing Kids and Creeks. I, uh, you know, running these stations, I was able to switch it up really quick, fix it, and then everybody was able to go through the process. And it was so successful that, you know, we had professors go, we have uh, botanists go, we have trained people going, and this, um, you know, this is happening while we're doing all of this work. We're uh, while we're doing all this work. We're uh, excuse me. That's okay. <laughs> Someone's trying to get my kid, my kids. Uh, while we're doing all this work, we're uh, picking up everyone's cues onto what they need to know to make it an applicable knowledge based endeavor. So what starts to happen is people want to really get into sawyering. So then I would offer, we did SR212 trainings and then 63 people showed up for that. So I basically have been explaining that, you know, we really, it's really great to have volunteer groups, but what we really have to do is work with the tribe under the certification. And then we are going to be going into certification in other state programs like, you know, fire and uh, with uh, sawyering and logging uh, as some people call it, but I call it tree cutting. <laughs> and then, um, and then some, we really move that into contracting so that the tribe can go into contracting, you know, these, you know, federal lands and doing large 20 year stewardship contracting. This large 20 year stewardship contracting puts people on the land for 20 years managing it. And so you used these projects used to be seven years, eight years, nine years, and it was exhausting. And after time and time of study, the United States realized these restoration projects take 20 years at the minimum, minimum yeah. Yeah. to do. Minimum. And and we heard quite a bit about this when we spoke with Lorena uh, Gorbett and the work that she's doing with the Maidu Summit Consortium. Is the the Chico Traditional Ecological Stewardship Program, is that, does that um, interact with the consortium in any way, or are they just sort of adjacent projects? Uh, we, I mean, we, I do a lot of liaison work. So because I'm working with TEK uh, with uh, with my tribe, that is just one consulting. So I not only just consult with my tribe, I consult with other agencies, and a lot of those agencies are in Machupta tribal territory, but have work with other tribes outside of the Machupta territory. And so what that helps, what they, they, they're able to do is kind of pull me on as a a tribal consultant liaison. So I can just basically run down cultural competency to their, their staff and then liaison the work where I'm not an authority in their territory. I'm just helping get their knowledge out and, you know, making sure that 
um, they're getting respected and their cultural resources and everything that they need to get across um, is done. And I can, uh, if there's any help that I can serve, then I'll do that. And so, you know, with, with all of this effort and, and knowledge and coordinating that you are putting out in, into the world right now, Allie, when you, when you think about your own kids, when you think about your elderhood, when you think about, you know, this land that you are advocating with and for, what are your greatest hopes for, for what this looks like in five years, in 25 years? Well, in 25 years, what I really hope is that there is a viable economy in our area based on the strength that the Machupta tribe has provided for certification for land management. And what that means is that people can get an education on land management as a way of life and get into the, 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 uh, you know, basically the certification games that happen that place you into to decision-making and long-term land management projects. And I think that that's what I'd like to see in 20 years is that it's not all native run everything, but it's all native consulted and native um, uh, in the center of the discussion of how TEK was here before and how we can restore it back to its place. Because a lot of folks here, based on their education, believe that John and Annie Bidwell created Chico, California, and thus created the, be- the beautiful landscapes. But that is a misunderstanding of how history was written. The landscapes and the land was managed and tended for thousands of years by local natives. And when they founded these parks, it was based on land management. So for the last hundred and so years, they have prohibited the the stewards to come upon the land and manage the land so that's why it has to be in the center and the top of all land management when any corporation especially from new jersey or from across anywhere that has zero understanding of the history of this land they should not be making decisions on how to restore it they should be getting educated so that they have the right tools to make the good decisions and so that is what I'd like to see. And I think that if there's folks that really um, begin to have hostility about inviting natives into these spaces, that their voices are drowned out and they are shut out if they don't learn how to participate fairly and justly. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it's a great... Um... I will go with you on this vision, I think is what I want to say. I, I love this vision, and I think we all need to be working toward it, uh, especially um, when we see what unmanaged land, uh, especially unintelligently or knowledgeably managed land, uh, creates in the way of watershed or forestry. or It, it is um, that concept has gotten us where we are now, which is a, a pretty scary one when it comes to fire or water um, in our region and um, and healthy ecosystems in our in our forests and our grasslands. Um, and I we we all need to learn this quick as, as quickly as we can at, at personal individual levels and at uh, governance levels as well. When you think about the many people who, who now live on these lands that are the traditional lands of the Machupta Maidu people, if you were to, you know, enter my suburban neighborhood, Ali, and you were to give a consultation for homeowners uh, on normal city lots, and you would say, I would like to see you introduce as many of these five plants as you can, for a return of healthier soil, healthier ecosystems. What would those five plants be, Allie? So it depends on your ecological zone. So a lot of areas, like if you're in, a lot of folks, if they're living in a suburban yard and they have a square piece Mm -hmm. of lot with a yard Mm -hmm. around it, and they're like, I want to put some native plants in here and I want to be able to do it 
you know, uh, wisely. Um, you know, it just depends on the soil type and everything, what you really should be around you. You have to look over your fence, look around, get a Google map and look a little bit higher into your watershed. Are you near a riparia? Some people's property is backed up right against a creek and they know they would rather build a fence and do a lot of defensiveness to keep that water coming up. But if you need to get water from not creeping up into your yard, you need to put sedge grasses in. You need to put willow. You need to put things that basket that really make bind down the integrity of your watershed to keep it from flooding. And if it does flood, that it absorbs it well enough to even build more soil to keep it to to build taller. So it it almost creates a little tiny natural levee mm -hmm. for you. But you really have to understand where you are. So if you're also uh, like uh, you know, and that's where, you know, in Chico, you could be in a watershed, a creek watershed in a flood zone, but the way that they built the pro built it, you don't even know that you're on an old <laughs> wetland. Right. And so uh, you should be in a swamp. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so a lot of those grasses that they put down and little there, you know, you have to see if it's real sandy, then you should be putting in salt grasses, you know, native salt grasses, things that are that that uh, that love that soil type, those natives that are adapted to all the kinds of California soils. And you really have to 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 feel that out. And I wouldn't. Um, and that's what the problem is with the Native Plant Society. Uh, sometimes on the, the page, uh, you know, it blows my mind. We're in California and California takes up most of the West Coast. We were on the East Coast and we had some Virginia Plant Society. It's more specifically place based. But because California is like there is all kinds of different all I mean, they've got oceanfront property from woodlands to a swamp. I mean, you've got every variety of ecosystem in California you can imagine. It's such a huge place that people believe that one a plant called a native California plant and that whole state of California can belong in one in every, you know, in, in one in their backyard, you know, and so that. That is, um, that's incredibly uh, naive in my understanding of how plants work is that you would, um, you would look at this whole construct of, of a colonized statehood as a map of plants and where they belong because it doesn't make sense because not, not, that's not how they were stewarded and that's not how they were found right. even. Right. And I, and I, you know, I will say I love the California native plant idea, but your first recommendation right there when I asked you that question about recommended plants, that's where you have to start is what native plants live in your part of California, what live over your backyard, what, you know, and that's where you have to start. Uh, not with this idea that every plant that's native to this constructed state is native to everywhere in that state. And that's true in any state you might live in. Um, any region in this whole world you might live in, uh, that when you use the term native plant, you have to be very careful of what your geographic boundaries are with that understanding, um, if you ever hope to be successful with it. The, um, you know, I, I want to pull ba us back around to this concept of uh, the, the basketry and this being a, uh, a line of, of knowledge and artistry and relationship in your life and that it was in loving the weaving of a basket that you realized that to get a good basket, you actually have to have good land management, that those two things are directly correlated. Oh, yeah. So the the, the idea of, uh, of a beautiful basket um, really, you know, is a development of a land practice of creating beautiful material. And all of a lot of our native plants, most all native plants that I deal with in my territory are fire adapted down to the willow, down to, uh, uh, I can't think of one native plant that's not really fire adapted. And what they're adapted to is fire, not as like, as people see it, like, oh, you know, hot flames burning you down, you know, like um, maybe a little flambe, maybe so they like <laughs> some of them like flambe a little bit, but they don't like to like, you know, tropic thunder. And um, but there's this idea that, you know, smoke 
you know, the smoke that we don't realize, we think smoke is like nasty. We're humans. We're, we have a different understanding, but the smoke is kind of like a shower cleansing a lot of bugs and issues away from that habitat they're used to. And then a lot of them respond well by having their seeds, their seeds get stratified. So a lot of folks that are like, I love this native plant. And I went and grabbed the seed off of it and threw it down. It never grew. And I'm like, most likely it's a fire adapted plant and those seeds need to burn. If you don't burn them on your hot plate before you throw them in the ground or boil them or do something hot to them, they're not going to, they're not going to prop, they're not going to germinate. So what, what you have is, um, you know, that understanding in this landscape, that management is not just about going in with the clippers and pulling weeds and getting on your hands and knees and getting crews to do that, or even chopping down trees and figuring that out. A lot of it has to do with how do you manage large pieces of land with safe fire? And sometimes you do have to go in with thinning crews um, because there hasn't been land management and clean a lot of stuff up off the trees so they don't climb up. But once you get that done, then you should have a regimen started. Is there anything else you would like to add uh, in terms of the the joy and the beauty of your relationship with the, the plants and lands that you tend, Allie, before we, we end today? There's a huge joy in getting not only the restoration looked at and done, but getting people involved to do it together. And like I said, for generations, for everyone to share this vision of a long-term goal to work hard. And I've been out on the land with crews that people have exhausted driving, you know, walking up steep, 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 steep mountain cliffs out here in, in Megalian Paradise. And, um, and these tribal crews, fills their heart with joy to be out on the land and doing something with themselves that's meaningful and something that we've done for thousands of years. And to bring that back to us as a living uh, and to offer that to not only to ourselves, but to other, because, you know, we, we make up less than 1% of the population of Chico, California. And so we're going to need help. And so this crew that we're building now is going to be the next teachers and then the other teachers that we teach, but this has to keep going. This legacy has to keep going. And that the idea of see like that brings me joy. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you and share your passion and knowledge forward, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. I hope uh, I hope folks learn something and I definitely am happy to share. Ali Meters Knight is a Machupta tribal member whose traditional and present homelands are based in interior Northern California. A mother of five and a traditional basket weaver in Chico, California, Ali is a liaison, working to form partnerships for federal forest stewardship contracting and tribal forestry programs authorized in the 2018 Farm Bill. Allie has been a traditional ecological knowledge practitioner and leader for over 20 years, creating, collaborating on, and leading decolonized environmental education and land restoration projects. Join us again next week when we continue our annual early July exploration of Gardner Citizens in conversation with Dr. Bonnie Clark, professor of anthropology at the University of Denver, about her many years of researching the gardening practices of Japanese Americans held during World War II at Camp Amachi on the high plains of southern Colorado. Listen in then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, under the podcast tab, you will find much more on Allie Meter's Night and her traditional ecological knowledge work, including many photos. 
Also at CultivatingPlace.com, you can subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and so that you can get each week's full interview and more information. Cultivating Place is made possible by our community of listeners just like you around the garden world and by support from the American Horticultural Society celebrating nearly 100 years of horticultural knowledge. Our producer in charge of development and outreach is Sarah Bohannon. Our audio producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.